Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to week two of Advent. Uh, my name is Prentice, for those of you that I've yet to meet, uh, and I get the privilege to be lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. And for those of you that brave the, the wintry storm and the snow and the ice, I uh, just want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. For those of you that decided to, to watch online or watch through, sometime throughout the week, I'm uh, glad you will participate in that way as well. And so uh, this week is week two of Advent. And, and you'll notice that last week we started lighting these candles. And uh, in the long history of the church, uh, we see Advent as four weeks and the fifth week being a Christmas day. Uh, and each week we light a candle. And each candle represents a theme, love joy, peace, hope, and then the candle of Christ. And so that is the purpose of the candles and, uh, in which we light each Sunday as you arrive. And so as Remy read and talked about, uh, and as uh, Megan talked about with the kiddos, uh, we are going through the family tree of Jesus. And, and, and I know that as we talk about family trees, it brings up things uh, in our own lives and with our own families. And so, uh, quickly, I just want to read a verse in Matthew, <clears throat> and I'll say this to set up next week. We're skipping a, a generation and then going back to that person next week uh, because we have, let's just say, we have kiddos in the room. And so, uh, this morning, we will be talking about Ruth. Next week, we'll go back to talk about Rahab. Uh, and if you know the story of Rahab, then you understand why we might opt to switch weeks. And so again, hopefully if you were here last week or heard the message from last week, the, geneal the genealogy of Jesus uh, hits a little bit differently because we understand that it, it was very purposeful and intentional as Matthew was writing down who the family tree of Jesus was. And so the opening of Matthew says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the son of, uh, was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And if you know the story, it is peppered with drama and betrayal and hurt and pain. And yet uh, they're still included in the family tree of Jesus. Then there was Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, as we talked about last week. Uh, and, and then Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. And then the list goes on, and then it says that we get to a man named Sal Salmon, the father of Boaz, which we'll somewhat meet this morning, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, father of Obed, was the mother of Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and the Jesse the father of King of David. So what we'll see is that throughout the line, including Ruth, uh, we get to Obed and we get to Jesse, or uh, David. And all that to say is we get to Jesus. And we're thankful that the Bible shows us that even the family tree of Jesus can be a little bit messy. And even through that mess, there was beauty. And the beauty was the person of Jesus who came to this earth for us, for God's own church. And if last week was a story about how God uses messiness, not just messiness in people's families, but even the messiness in our own lives, the mistakes, the hurt, the pain that, we were, that, that, that many of us have gone through, 
if, if God can use those things, then, then this week is about tragedy. If last week was about the messiness and the mistakes and who we bring to the table, this week is about tragedy. And you'll see so much tragedy as we talk about the story of Ruth. And so let me pray real quick and we'll get started. God, thank you so much. Now, last week we learned that even through the messiness we bring to you, you still love us and still use us. You forgive us and you create beauty out of that. And this week, as we look at the story of Ruth, you teach us that even in the midst of grief and loss and tragedy, that you even use those stories to bring about redemption and hope in this Advent season and in our lives. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. I talk about this story a lot, but a few years ago, uh, my friend and I decided to go on this uh, five-day backpacking trip uh, to Glacier National Park in Montana. Uh, and for those of you that know me, I, I, I do these trips, and I'll go on hikes, and I'll go backpacking, and I'll go camping. I don't love it, but I do it uh, because I think there's something about being in nature that we can experience God's beauty. But even the whole concept of hiking is a, is a bit strange to me uh, because you essentially wake up early, or maybe you go during the day, you hike up a huge hill... Oftentimes, you're complaining on the way up, and then you walk back down, and then you tell people, oh, it was wonderful. So I don't understand fully the concept, but I went on this trip with a buddy who was a kind of an avid outdoors person, and, and I remember one, so we went up different hikes and different trails throughout the day, and there was one, and I kid you not, it was around 10 miles long, just one way, and at the top, we would camp out for a couple days and camp and then hike back down. But I remember not even halfway, maybe it was like at mile two and mile three, I told my friend Dan, I said, Dan, you know what, let's, I think this is enough. You can look around, you see trees, you, you know, you see some, some good scenery, wonderful, let's go back, this is hard. And, and he kept on urging me, no, like, at first, he was like, we're almost there, which I, I knew that we weren't. We had like seven or eight more miles to go. And I said, I don't, I don't think so. Dan, I would love to go back down, go back to our car, and we can just do some car camping. We can bring out the stove. We can bring out the, the, the nice meals. We can get into our sleeping bags, and we can do all these things. And he was like, you know what, Prince, I know it's getting hard, but trust me, at mile four, at mile five, it gets better. And so like a fool, I took his word, and we kept going. And I'll tell you what, though, mile four and mile five, it did not get better. It actually got worse. And finally, after several hours, we finally got to the top, and there was something about being at the top where I looked around, not just the view, but even the path that I, that I came on, and I said, wow, this is, this is actually beautiful. And this scene and, and the, the feeling of reward and everything that comes to you because you went through this trek of hiking became so vivid and so real. It was incredible. And, and I would imagine that if somebody just dropped me off in a, in a helicopter or something to the top, 
although I would have said yes to that, I would imagine that my experience would have been very different. For me, going to the top in that long and painful trek up to the top and finally looking down, even through the, the, the pain and the aches and even through some scratches, because and only because I experienced those things, I look back and I can breathe and I can say, wow, thank God for this view. Thank God for the air. Thank God I'm finished. Thank God that I can rest. Thank God uh, that this journey brought me to where I am now. And I look back and I'm so thankful that my friend just urged me to keep going. Now, this whole idea of wanting to turn back, to quit, to let go or to do something different, there's moments where there's a time and place for that, and that is a good thing. And I'm not going to talk too much about that. I'll mention it in a second or so. But what I believe is that our society has conditioned us that the journey it means nothing to your final destination. That the final destination is, all, is what life is all about, and the journey to get there has no impact. And I think that's the reason why is because our culture, our society today has conditioned us in many ways, but I would say in the first way is that our culture has conditioned us to experience this culture of instant gratification. And now, like I said earlier, if someone would have said, you can either hike up 10 miles, or you can ride on this helicopter and just get dropped off at the top in, you know, in 10 minutes, which one would you choose? And, and to be really honest, I would have chose that plan, to just get dropped off at the top of the mountain without the work, without the journey, without the hike. And, and for many of us, we've been conditioned in life especially when it comes to hard things, especially when it comes to hard times and even tragedy and despair in our lives, what we want to do is say, you know what, let's forget about that. Let's either sweep it under the rug. Let's take this, this magic pill, figuratively or literally, to just finally get over this mess, not to go through this season of lament or pain or grief and loss, and we want this instant satisfaction of healing and joy and comfort again and quickly. And I don't blame you. And I don't blame you. Who wants to experience the painful journey? We just want to get to the top of the mountain. And, and even our culture knows this. You know, like look at our daily lives. We have what we call on-demand TV shows. Like what are commercials? Like, why would you ever watch a commercial and wait? You can just watch every single episode of your favorite TV show back to back to back. Not that I do that. I mean, I don't know about you guys. Maybe you do. Okay, yes, I have done that. And, and there's some shows even today where, I, you know, I'll blame it on my wife. My wife will watch shows like The Bachelorette or like, you know, like uh, Love is Blind and I just happen to be in the room, and we have one TV, and so I'm like, all right, I'll watch it. And I sit there, and then by the end of the show, I'm like, wait a minute, we have to wait till next week before we can watch the next episode? 
Like, what is this? Is it the 90s again? And I'm sitting here complaining because, again, I've been conditioned to, and I'm just to rewind, I don't know if you believe me or not, but I'm just as much into the show as much as my wife is. And so, there, there's my confession. But all that to say is I get really disappointed because I have to wait another week before another episode comes on. And I'm like, what is this, the 1990s? I remember you doing that when I was younger, but now I want on demand. I want the next episode right away. I want the next show right away, whatever it is. And I want it in the comforts of my own home. And I always talk about this. Remember the days, and I, and I do this. I'm so guilty of this myself. Remember the days when you're in conversation with people and you get to something that you don't know or you forgot, and you're like, who, like, what was that actor in that one movie? And there was a time that some of you might not remember where you think about it for a second, and then you move on with life because you can't remember it. Nowadays, because of this aspect of this culture of instant satisfaction and gratification, when you're like, oh, who was that actor in that one movie? I, I, well, take out our phones, and you can Google it. And, and we have information, instant information at the palm of our hands, Anytime we want it. We live in a culture where we've been conditioned that we should be expecting instant gratification. And the problem with that is that it seeps into our journey of life, our journey of faith, and our relationships. We don't want to go through the dating of relationships. We don't want to go through uh, the getting to know somebody in a friendship level. We don't want to cultivate and curate healthy relationships. We want to just get to the joys and the comforts and all the benefits of it. We don't want to go through the pain. We don't want to go through the conflict. And as soon as we experience that, we're out of there because we want instant gratification. And secondly, I won't spend too much more time on this, but secondly, we live in a culture of the bigger, better deal, which we'll see in the story of Ruth is that there is an essence of commitment an oath. I know that oath is a kind of an old school word, but there's, a, there's an essence of oath that permeates throughout the story. And I remember, I still do this today, but when I was in college, I had what many of us would, would call, remember, FOMO, the fear of missing out. I mean, nowadays, maybe I'm a little bit older, and now I'm like, I have a fear of being included. Because I'm a total introvert, and I don't want to be invited. I want to be in my house, and I just want to watch Love is Blind, all right? And I just want to hang out. But in college, I had this FOMO where I would get invited to certain things, certain get-togethers or parties, and I would say, well, maybe. Oh, yeah, 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 maybe. Or I would say, oh, yeah, just I'll put it in my calendar. I'll see what's going on. And then at the end of the week, or maybe the weekend hits, I look at my calendar or whatever it is, and then I choose the bigger, better deal of what I want to do. Or, or worse off, and sometimes I'm guilty of this, I say yes to something. Yeah, I'll be at your birthday party, or yes, let's have dinner that night, or let's have coffee. And then Friday comes, and somebody offers a bigger, better deal. And, and so I'm like, oh, shoot, but I already made this oath. I made this commitment, but I want to do this, and I bail. And I've done that before. And maybe you have to, or maybe you experience someone bailing on you or flaking on you for the sake of a better event, for a bigger, better deal. We live in a culture where we say, that's okay. And, and, and I would say, even when you talk about going to saying yes to a commitment or to a party or a dinner, like these may sound trivial, but these are painful. 
And, and at the worst end of it, you see issues even with broken trust and infidelity and betrayal because of a bigger, better deal. And, and the worst part of it is sometimes I've even experienced in conversations where the bigger, better deal is very normalized. I mean, I just recently had a, had a uh, conversation not debating, but just kind of hearing other sides of how people felt about monogamy, about a covenantal marriage, and how sometimes that feels to some unrealistic or even unfair to be committed to somebody for a life. And so the problem with our culture oftentimes is that we have this this culture of instant satisfaction, this culture of the bigger, better deal, and, and lastly, this culture of convenience. We live in this culture of convenience. I don't want to just go on that hike. I don't want to struggle for 10 miles. I just want to be dropped off to the end, to the finish line. Again, to the joy, to the happiness, to the happy ever after, whatever it is. Like, that's where I want to go. And I want it quick, and I want to, that to be the best part, and I want it to be convenient. And again, maybe this is part of my confession here is I love technology, I love what it offers, uh, and I love that I have, maybe this drives my wife nuts, and maybe this is you as well. We have all the food in the fridge, but the problem is you have to cook it. And I don't want to cook it, because it's easier for me to pull out my phone, and go on Uber Eats or on DoorDash, click a few buttons, and 30 minutes later, I have food nice and hot and ready at the front door of my house. It's convenient. For many of us, when we think about our lives, our journeys of faith, particularly our journey of faith, We are met with this culture of instant satisfaction, of the bigger, better deal, of convenience. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing that has been more damaging, especially here in the West, than those three things as it pertains to our faith, our journey in Christ. And in the popular, in the, in the last couple of years, there's been a popular buzzword called deconstruction of faith. And many of you have heard of it. And, and in fact, I, I actually think not only is it a good thing, but it's a necessary thing as part of our faith to deconstruct and, and, to, and to figure out, like, what is real to me in my faith? What have I just adopted? What have I just inherited from maybe my parents or whatever I heard in Sunday school? And these are all good things to question. And so there's nothing wrong necessarily with deconstruction. But there's a other part of this where it gets dangerous where out of our own anger, out of our own hardship with our faith. And believe me, faith is hard. Being in a relationship with God requires so much trust and so much obedience and so much faithfulness. It's really, really hard. And, and instead of fighting through that hardship of relationship with God, many of us, instead of going through that journey, that 10-mile hike, we say, you know what, I'm out of here. And again, I want to say to some people that I left faith because they've been so traumatically, and I say that word by its purest definition, some people that I know have been traumatized by not Jesus, but by the church, by people, by us. And to some degree, I, I don't necessarily blame them 
for wanting to abandon a place that have deeply hurt and traumatized our lives. And for many of us, and for many others, including myself, we, instead of just kind of battling and fighting through, we just abandon because it's the easier thing to do. Now when we, again, look at the story of Ruth, Ruth had every reason to quit. Her life was filled with tragedy. Let me just read just the first few verses in the first chapter of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled. So basically all the author is saying is that Ruth was during a time when there was judges, which was after they had occupied the land of Canaan, the, the land of milk and honey. So they went from Egypt, now they are in Canaan, the promised land, and this was the time of Judges. But in the time of Judges, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion. They were from Aphrodite, from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, what I want you to know is that, first, there's two people in the story with two sons. And I know that there's this, a lot of names going around, so I just put up a visual for you. There was a couple named Naomi and Elimelech. They were living in, in, in Judah in Bethlehem at the time. Now, the problem with living in Bethlehem at the time was that there was a great famine. There was no food to sustain them, to keep them alive. And so Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they trekked over uh, to a place called Moab. And Moab was a little bit of a foreign land. So you can see the arrows. This is Ruth's journey. And, uh, well, really, this is the journey of Naomi and Elimelech and their two kids. They went from Bethlehem down to Moab. That's about a 10-day journey on foot. Now, you can see that the tragedy hits right away. The author introduces, again, the, the, two, the two people in the couple, Naomi and Elimelech, the two sons. And they had to leave their land because there was a famine. So that was tragedy number one. There was a famine in the land, and they had to move to a foreign place. Now, one thing you have to understand about the ancient Near East is that home was everything. It was a place of worship. It was a place where their God was there. It was a place of family. It was a place of familiarity. And the fact that because of this famine, they had to flee to, to receive nourishment and to life, that was a tragedy. And not only did they have to move away from uh, Bethlehem, they had to move to Moab, a foreign land, with, with people that spoke different language, that ate different food, the, the people that worshipped different gods, and they had to go there just to survive. Tragedy, number one. And then it says, while they were in Moab, again, their sons each married Moabite women. 
Malon married a woman named Ruth, where we get the namesake of the book. And their other son, Kilion, married a woman named Orpah. So as they move over from Bethlehem to, to Moab, the two sons grow a little bit older, and they marry. The two women that are in the family now are Ruth uh, and Orpah. They are essentially Naomi and Elimelech's uh, daughters-in-law. Now then, there's the second tragedy. The second tragedy is that uh, the father of the household dies. Elimelech dies. And now Naomi is left as a widow with sons and daughters-in-law. But Naomi now is a widow. That's a tragedy, as we talked about last week, is that widows were considered one of the most vulnerable people in the ancient Near East society when it's a, where it's a very patriarchal world. They lacked rights. They lacked care. They lack certain benefits. And so now Elimelech dies and Naomi is left as a widow. Now you can already see that there's so much tragedy. They had to move away from their homeland. And now Naomi's husband, the father of the household, Elimelech dies. And Naomi is left as a widow with the sons and daughters. Now there's tragedy number three, it says where now the sons die. Now Naomi is left with no husband and now no sons. Essentially no men in her life, again, adding to the vulnerability and the marginalization of Naomi, not only Naomi, but the daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Now this is where the story gets really interesting. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, you can see that Naomi is just peppered with so much tragedy. She says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. And so they get to this turning point where Naomi looks at the daughters-in-law and says, you know what, 10 years have passed, or a lot of years have passed. And Naomi says, I caught wind that back in Bethlehem that, my, that, that there's food now. And that there's crops, and I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem where my family and familiarity is. Hey, daughters-in-law, Ruth, Orpah, you go back to your mother's home. You stay here in Moab. You're from Moab. This is your home. You just go. And, and they both urge Naomi, say, you know what? We're going to go with you. Naomi, uh, mother-in-law, we're going to go with you. I, nothing can separate us. And you can see that there's so much heartache and this desire to stay connected. And Naomi says, you don't understand. If you go with me back to Bethlehem, then I'm not going to have another son. And what's going to happen if I have another son? Are you going to marry my son? No. And on top of that, as Moabite women going back to Bethlehem might be very dangerous for you. And no one's going to want to marry you. So just stay here because, again, now maybe you can get remarried and you can have the benefits of being partnered and paired with a, with a male, which means a lot in this, first, in this ancient Near East context. And Orpah says, okay, I'll stay. So Orpah sticks around. But Ruth, Ruth is wired a little bit different. Ruth, a Moabite woman, says this in verse 16. Ruth replied to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back my back on you. 
Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her to stay back. I love this image. I love, I can just picture it. Orpah leaves, that's fine, no, no shame on her. But Ruth says, Naomi, Ruth says, my mother-in-law, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go, and nothing can stop me. I am committed to you, and I'm making an oath to you that nothing can separate us, not even death. No matter what kind of life I will live back in Bethlehem, no matter what kind of <clears throat> marginalization that I will feel as a foreigner from Moab, no matter what I feel as a widow, no matter what I experience, Naomi, I'm going to make a commitment and an oath to you that I'm going to be with you till the day that I die and nothing will separate us. Now you can imagine that in a life filled with tragedy, that Ruth, including Ruth, who lost her husband, who is now a widow, Ruth had an opportunity to stay back, to get remarried perhaps, to live in familiarity at, in her mother's home, <clears throat> to not go and put herself through being a foreigner in Bethlehem. And for many of us that have experienced tragedy of some sort, maybe a loss, a grief, and, and as Megan said, <clears throat> oftentimes the holidays is not just about joy to the world. And although it is, and I think we should sing about joy to the world because we're celebrating our Savior Jesus. It's also a time to recognize that sometimes many of us, we bring in tragedy. And many of us have experienced this, and sometimes the holidays doesn't get rid of it, it just exacerbates it. But yet in God's loving and mysterious and wonderful way, in this tragedy, there's an opportunity to come out of it so much stronger, so much more wise, healthier. And this is not me saying that God causes tragedy or hardships or loss or despair, but it is me saying that in it, in the tragedy and despair and the pain, we can experience God's transformation. And, and I hate saying this, but we can experience God's transformation that we could otherwise never have ever learned or experienced. And many of us who, who are married, who have been in strong friendships, who wrestle and navigate with family dynamics, we understand that it's the conflict, the pain, the hurt, the drama, the disagreements, the, the arguments, the fights, whatever it is. Those are the things that become the very things that bond us together. Conflict of any sort becomes the lab for intimacy. And for many of us, we want to just hike and go right to the top. And we want to forego the hardships and the despair and the loss. And again, not that God causes these things, but because of these things, God can teach us, make us wiser, make us healthier, and brings a transformation in and out of that. I mean, think of your own relationships. It's the conflict that became the lab for intimacy. 
And when it comes to our relationship with God, it's these doubts and it's these pain. And it's these curiosity and it's this wonder and it's hardships and all these mixed together that becomes the, the agent, the catalyst towards intimacy with God. And the relationship with Ruth and Naomi was special. The reason why it was special is because Ruth and Naomi both experienced so much pain and so much loss and so much hurt, and they will probably endure more. They weren't filled with joy and delight. They were going through so much junk. They were going through so much, and they had so much baggage, and actually it was easier for them to just part ways. And, and Naomi actually wanted that. Hey, hey, Orpah, hey, hey, Ruth, it's easier right now. I, things are really hard. You lost your husband. I lost my husband. I lost my kids. We're both widows. We have nothing good coming. And the easiest thing for us to do is just part ways. It's to just take the helicopter to the top of the mountain and just skip the hardship that is in front of us. And Ruth says, no, I'm going to go through all of this with you. I'm going to stay in the game. I'm going to make an oath with you, and I'm going to stay committed to you thick and thin, no matter how painful it is, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we will go through. Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to make this oath with you that nothing can separate us. And it's because of that journey that they've been, there was so much intimacy with the two. And you can experience that in your own relationships because of the conflict that you went through with others. If you come out of it and not give up, if you stay in the game, if you're able to do hard things with the other person, there's something about that conflict that brings about intimacy that would have never happened without that very conflict. And that is true with our relationship with God. It's because we struggle. It's because we go through challenging moments. It's because we go through loss and anguish and tragedy, whatever that looks like for you. And if we stay in the game and say, God, I will make an oath to you. I'm going to be committed to you. I don't see the end of the road. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if you're going to heal me right away, even though I want that because I live in this culture of instant gratification. I want everything to be convenient. I want the, the bigger, better deal. I can actually leave you, God, and just go into whatever it is that brings me temporary joys, whether it's the things on the Internet or whether it's, it's, it's pills or, what, or, or unhealthy relationships or whatever it is. It's easier just to pick the better deal. And sometimes at that moment, it's to just distract ourselves with those things instead of saying, God, I'm going to stay in the game with you no matter what. And that is what Ruth did with Naomi. And what if in our lives, no matter what the journey looks like, the good, the pain, the ugly, the highs and the lows, what if we say, God, no matter what, I'm going to stick with you because as I stick with you, intimacy will grow. And out of that intimacy, no matter what my external circumstances are, internally, I will experience joy and, and comfort and hope that is everlasting and everlasting. So if you skip it, you will miss out. And so here are my three suggestions or practices as we end. One is this. Be okay with wrestling with God. That's okay. Being in intimacy and being, uh, you know, in relationship with God doesn't mean, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't be honest with God. God already knows everything that we're experiencing. 
Be okay with going into prayer, going into discussion with friends, going into your scriptures, going into different books, going into nature on a hike, and just downright just like have it out with God. It's okay. Be willing to wrestle with God. God knows our pain. God knows what we're going. God already knows what we're thinking. So just be vulnerable with God and just, God, in Philippians, it says, be anxious about nothing, but be okay with prayer and petition. God, this is what I want. God, this is what's happening. God, why is this happening? It's okay to do that. That is part of the growth of intimacy in our conflict with God and with others. Wrestle with God. Be okay with wrestling with God. Number two, be okay with the ands. Last week, we talked about this idea of dichotomy. It's either I'm good or I'm not good. It's either I'm healthy or I'm unhealthy. It's either I'm happy or I'm unhappy. No, in the kingdom of God, there's space for this and. I am going through this hard time. I'm going through tragedy and God, I know you're there. Things feel very dark and bleak and I'm experiencing so much despair and anguish and this is crazy. I don't know why, but I feel hopeful. There's noise in our life. There's temptation for the bigger, better deal. There's temptation to just cope with the things that are happening. And I'm going to choose to take the harder route and just stay in the game, following after Jesus. Be okay with the ands. God is powerful to hold both intention. And lastly, make an oath. And I know this word oath is kind of old school. Make a commitment. Making a commitment these days is almost like being antithetical to our culture. It's almost being uh, disruptive to what our society is teaching us. But make a commitment saying, God, I don't know how things will turn out, but I'm going to walk with you. God walks with us. And if last week was about our own mistakes that we've made and the view of unworthiness that we may experience, God uses that to include us as part of his story and how things unfold. And this week, God uses our tragedies. doesn't cause them, isn't the author of them, but out of the tragedy becomes intimacy with God. And that's what it means to be in relationship with God, to be in the family of God. And as I invite the worship team back up, I invite us to reflect on whatever we're experiencing and to know that things will get hard. I think the, 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 the life and death of Jesus is an example of what life will be. Sometimes we will live in this death moment, in this, in this Friday moment. And I know that this is not Easter, this is, this is Advent, but many of us as being part of God's story means being in solidarity and identifying with Christ on the cross. Sometimes we will be 
feeling this death and this pain like Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus says to God, take this cup from me, but if this is your will, then I will stay here. And again, not to say that God wills pain and loss and anguish, but God does will for you to stay in intimate relationship with him no matter what. Because we know that Sundays are coming. We know that the resurrected life is coming. We know that hope and peace and joy and hope is coming. And that's what Advent is all about. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to recognize Christ's life, death, and resurrection by partaking in communion. As we sing this song, there'll be communion servers. And when you're ready, come and take the cup. But don't take it quite yet. Just hold on to it. Pray, sing. And then towards the middle of the song, I'm going to come back up and we'll take it, the communion cup, together as a community. So let's worship and come when you're ready.